And I want to do a little bit of review of what we've covered so far, just to set the context for our passage tonight. This is Paul's last letter. It's just before he'll be executed by the Roman Empire. He's really guilty of no crime other than being a proclaimer of Jesus Christ as God's Messiah and the message of eternal life that comes by grace through faith in him. He writes to his young co-laborer, Timothy. Timothy had come to faith in Christ through Paul's ministry, but he had been taught the Old Testament scriptures from childhood, first by his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. He had been subsequently set apart by the believers in his community to work with Paul as his associate. And they together entrusted the truth to faithful men who in turn could teach others. Timothy, by this point, has served alongside of Paul for about 15 years. Paul is about to die, and he knows it. He knows this is his last chance to exhort Timothy to be steadfast and faithful in the ministry of the gospel, despite the hardship that he will inevitably face. Now, in chapter 2, he's encouraged Timothy And again, by extension, all of us involved in Christian ministry at whatever level we're involved in, to have the endurance and singularity of of purpose of a good soldier, to have the discipline of an athlete who trains to win the prize, and to have the stamina of a hardworking farmer who enjoys the first fruits of his work but also looks forward to that final harvest. Along the way, and as I mentioned earlier, Paul has used the truths of the gospel as well as personal examples to motivate Timothy to be steadfast and faithful. Our passage tonight is very much along that same line. So with that background, let's read together. Second Timothy chapter 2, we'll read verses 8 through 13. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. As you'll see from your handout, I've outlined this passage in three sections. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Paul. And he's commanding Timothy to remember Paul and Paul's examples. Paul's example in particular in verses 9 and 10. And then remember the truth of the two ways in verses 11 through 13. Let's look first at verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. I've said already that Paul has motivated Timothy with the truths of the gospel. He did that back in chapter 1 in verses 9 and 10. He does it again now. He commands him to literally keep remembering Jesus Christ, to keep in mind all that Christ is and all that he's done. And this is essential, isn't it, for us in our own relationship with Christ Uh, The way that we do that is continually read through the scriptures, to be mindful. You hear people say, preach the gospel to yourself. That's really what we're doing. We're remembering Christ. We're remembering what he's done. We're remembering what he's going to do when he comes back. And that keeps us motivated to faithfulness in our own lives. The term Christ, of course, means anointed one. And it's a reference to the fact that Christ is king. 
He is indeed, as John says in the book of Revelation, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Most High One. Paul goes on here in this verse to describe him using two phrases, risen from the dead and descendant of David. Now, both of those are packed with truth. We're going to have to make a little detour out of 2 Timothy to a number of different places in the Scripture to really understand the background for both of those very brief phrases. The first place I want us to go where Paul uses very similar language to this is in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 1. So if you will, turn in your Bibles back to Romans 1. We're going to look there at verses 1 to 4. We can see some similarity there between Romans 1 and what Paul's doing here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Romans chapter 1, in these opening verses, Paul's identifying himself as an apostle of Christ, and then in a very compact form, he's summarizing the message of the gospel that he proclaims. I'm going to start in verse 1, read verses 1 to 4. Luke's going to put up here on the screen for us verses 3 and 4, and I want you to see the parallelism of these verses and to see the fact that these verses are both talking about the humanity of Christ on the one hand and his deity on the other. Romans chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Doesn't that sound a lot like what he's saying in 2 Timothy? The fact that the Old Testament Scriptures ultimately lead to Christ. They were the ones that made Timothy wise into salvation. Verse 3 says, the gospel, This gospel message is concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. See the the phrases there that occur in 2 Timothy as well. Descendant of David, power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. And I think what I try to do is just show how these verses parallel each other. He was born on the human side, as a descendant of David according to the flesh. That's talking about the humanity of Christ. He was declared on the divine side by God the Father, the Son of God, in contrast to a descendant of David, with power by the resurrection from the dead. We'll talk about that more as we go along. According to the spirit of holiness. Now, I don't think that's talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about Christ's divine spirit. It's talking about the fact that he was deity from his birth on. So, again, on the one hand, he's human. He's descended from David. On the other hand, he's fully divine. Of course, as a human being, he came through the line of David. And this goes all the way back to the Old Testament, particularly the Davidic covenant. You recall the context there in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You don't have to turn there, but let me just... Uh, give you some of that context and read some of those verses. David had already built himself a fine house. He recognized that the ark of God was still dwelling in a tent, and he wanted to build a house for God, a temple. Instead, God says, you're not the one to build a house for me. Your son will do that. I'm going to build a house for you. Now, he's talking about, at that point, he uses the term house. He's not talking about the physical structure of a house. David already has that. He's talking about a lineage. He's talking about an enduring uh, descendancy of kings that will come from David. 
Here's what the covenant says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 16. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Of course, the reference there is to Solomon. Solomon is the one who ends up building the temple. And he is the first in this line of descendants that comes from David and sits upon the Davidic throne. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. I should stop there and say, this was the relationship that every king that came to the throne of Israel enjoyed. That is, the line, in the line of David, their relationship to God was that of a father to a son. It was a permanent relationship, and that son was to rule on the father's behalf. It was still God's kingdom, but he ruled, the Davidic king did, as God's regent upon the earth. So he says here that he'll discipline that king when necessary, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him. As I took it away from Saul, so there's a clear contrast to what God did with Saul and what he'll do with the sons of David. I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Let's look at the next slide. Luke, if you'll throw that next one up there for me. And you may need to click through this several times to get all of it. For the first 120 years, there was a united kingdom under Saul being the first king, then David, then Solomon. Because of Solomon's sin in 931 B.C., the, the kingdom divided. Ten tribes went to the north and established a new capital in Samaria. Only two tribes went to the south, the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. Of course, David was of the tribe of Judah. The northern kingdom went into captivity by Assyria in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom lasted a little bit longer than that, but they ultimately went into captivity as well, 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. But the line of David, and that is the southern kingdom, that's the main thing that I want you to see from this slide. The northern kingdom the kings came from a bunch of different families. But the Davidic covenant was made through the line of kings and to the line of kings in the southern kingdom, the kingdom that what becomes known as the kingdom of Judah. Even, well, as they were getting ready, as God warned them about coming exile, and he promised he'd done, he would do that all the way back in the book of Leviticus, he used prophets to try to call the people back to covenant faithfulness, and they continued to refuse to do that. Ultimately, they were taken into exile. So there was no throne, strictly speaking, in Judah at that time, but the line of David continued. It was preserved all the way through the intertestamental period and all the way down to the time of Christ. So the essence of the Davidic covenant then is that David would never lack a man to sit upon the throne of Israel. The throne itself ceased at a certain point, but the line was preserved. Later revelation in the prophets picks up on this theme of the ultimate Davidic ruler coming to rule over both Israel and the nations, leading the people and keeping the Mosaic law. That was one of the main functions of the king. And thereby being blessed by God in accordance with all the promises that he had made in all of his covenants. 
That includes the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the priestly covenant, the new covenant. Now, I want to just look at a sampling. We don't have time to look at all of them, but just a sampling of these latter prophets. And I, want, I don't want you to turn there, just jot the references down, but I want to read them in such a way that you'll see the connection to David in each one of them. And these will be very familiar passages to many of you. Isaiah, we'll look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel as three of the major latter prophets. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David... And over his kingdom, that's in that Davidic line, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Isaiah 16:5. A throne will even be established in loving kindness, and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent or house of David. Moreover, he will seek justice. And be prompt in righteousness. You can see as you're standing at this point in history. As you look back. The kings have not performed according to what God wanted. There were some bright spots along the way. But as we get to the prophets. There's this anticipation of the ultimate Davidic ruler. That will do all that God requires. Jeremiah chapter 23 verses 5 and 6. Behold the days are coming. Declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. So this is looking forward to the uh, reunification of Israel as the northern kingdom and Judah as the southern kingdom. And there will be peace and prosperity that, again, was promised very early on in God's covenants to the nation of Israel, but has still not been realized in their history. This is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. And then Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. Alas, for that day is great. There's none like it. It's the time of Jacob's distress. He's not talking about Jacob the individual there, but Jacob as a name for the nation of Israel. It's a time of distress, but he will be saved from it. He's talking about the tribulation period there, the last of the 70 weeks that Daniel prophesies and and receives revelation about in Daniel chapter 9. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds, and strangers shall no longer make them their slaves. He's talking again about the nation of Israel. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up for them. Jeremiah 33, 15 through 17. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. He shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah shall be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. This is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the house of Israel. And then finally, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, verse 23, 
Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And then again in chapter 37, verses 24 and 25, my servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. Again, that's the ordinances that God originally gave them at Mount Sinai. It's the same ordinances that he renewed with them in the book of Deuteronomy just before Moses died. It's the same ordinances and covenant that they have consistently failed to keep throughout their history. Now he's saying there's going to be one who actually does lead them in keeping covenant with himself. Closely tied with keeping the law of God is the land, the productivity of the land, the security of dwelling in the land. He goes on to say in that same passage in Ezekiel, They shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons, and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Now those references to David, I take as being really a title more than a literal resurrection of David. Now, I'm certain that David will be in the millennial kingdom. Please don't misunderstand me. But when it talks about David here being the one shepherd over all the people, that's a reference to Christ. Of course, when we get to the New Testament, this is why Matthew takes such great pains to trace the lineage of Jesus himself through David, coming from both Abraham and David. The fact is that Christ's parents, his earthly parents, both Mary and Joseph, were descendants of David. And of course, this also is the background for the announcement by Gabriel to Mary in Luke's gospel. In chapter 1, verse 31 through 33, the angel Gabriel says, Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Get that now. The Son of the Most High the background being the Davidic covenant back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in which all those Davidic kings were the son of the Most High. Obviously, Christ is a son in the greatest way. He's actually God in the flesh. But the background there is 2 Samuel 7. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is the human side the descendant of David. But Paul also speaks of his divine side, the deity of Jesus Christ. He says that he's declared the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. This is back in Romans 1, according to the spirit of holiness. And as I said, the spirit of holiness here is not, not the Holy Spirit, it's the third person, the Trinity. We know that he did not come upon Christ until after his baptism. Here it's its own divine spirit. It's what It's that part of Christ that made him deity while he was here on the earth. He's the son of David according to the flesh, the son of God according to the spirit which dwelled within him from his birth. God the Father openly demonstrated to the world that Jesus Christ was exactly who he claimed to be. Most powerfully he did that by raising him from the dead. This is what Peter's talking about when he preaches to the Jews at Pentecost in Acts 2. He says there, This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. 
For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself, that is David says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So I think Romans 1 sheds a lot of light on what Paul is saying to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's go back there now. This is what Paul is commanding Timothy to remember. That Jesus is the Christ. That he is the one that was promised in the Old Testament scriptures. That God raised him from the dead and has thereby conquered sin and death. That Christ is now alive at the Father's right hand in heaven. That he is the descendant of David and therefore will return again in the future to rule from the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. At that time, he'll manifest to the whole world that he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Most people in the world don't recognize that today. It doesn't make any less true. But he will openly manifest that when he comes the second time. And he'll fulfill all those Old Testament promises that he did not fulfill at his first coming. All of this is contained in the message that Paul preached. And all of it's designed to remind Timothy that this is the one whom he serves. That, in turn, is going to sustain Timothy in the hardship and suffering that he will inevitably endure. This is the one also that will ultimately bring Timothy to glory. Now, as Paul mentions his gospel in 2 Timothy, he again turns to his role in that gospel, very similar to the way that he did back in chapter 1. So, verses 9 and 10, we've titled, Remember Paul. He says that it's for this gospel that he suffers hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. We talked about this earlier, and the difference between Paul's first imprisonment and his second one. You remember, at his first imprisonment, Paul was arrested by the Romans, but largely to deliver him from a Jewish mob. The Jews subsequently formed a plot against him to have him killed, and the Romans moved him to Herod's Praetorium. He appears before the Jewish council, later before Ananias the high priest, who was obviously a Jew. He appears before the lawyer Tertullus and others from Jerusalem who made further charges against him. Some two years later, another delegation of Jewish officials come down from Jerusalem, and Paul, they want Paul to return with them back to Jerusalem and stand charges there, stand trial against the charges. And at that point, Paul appeals to Caesar. But in all these incidents, it was the Jews who took issue with Paul because of the message that he was proclaiming and because he was going directly to the Gentiles. In essence, the Roman government through all this was protecting Paul. They delivered him from death on a couple of occasions. Now, Paul is not only facing opposition from the Jews, that's as strong as it's ever been, but he's also facing it from the Roman government. Christianity is now considered an illicit religion, and it's regarded as a threat by the Romans, a threat that they want to snuff out. That's why Paul, at this point, is regarded as an evildoer. He's regarded as a criminal in the same camp with murderers, traitors, insurrectionists. That's why he's suffering such terrible conditions in the Mamertine prison in Rome. That's why so many of his associates abandon him at this point. It's dangerous to be associated with him. That's why he's about to be executed. And yet, despite all of that, Paul is still victorious. 
he knows that he may be imprisoned, but the word of God can't be. It's such a divine power, the word is. He knows, Paul does, that the gospel is going to continue to spread regardless of whether or not he's executed. The believers are going to continue to be built up in God's truth, even as opposition gets worse from this point forward. He talks about this even in his first imprisonment, right, when he writes to the Philippians. And he's optimistic at this point that he's going to be released. But he says, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. That was a section of the Roman Guard. And to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. He's going to talk about this again, and we'll get to it eventually in Second Timothy in chapters 3 and 4. And we can think about this in a more contemporary way, a more modern-day example. I think about it oftentimes in terms of the Soviet Union. Uh, they did everything they could to stamp out Christianity. For 70 years, they had a regime that wasn't just Russia proper, but you think about how vast the Soviet Empire was, how many countries came under it, and they inculcated from their youth up this idea that there was no God. They did everything they could to stamp out the Bible. And yet, just as in the days of the Romans, there were small congregations of believers that knew Christ through all of that. They were persecuted severely, and yet the gospel continued to spread across the Soviet Union. I think, to a large degree, we didn't even know how many believers were there until the wall came down. But that is the nature of God's word. It's the nature of the power of God. His power and his word are magnified as they overcome opposition, and even against the most insurmountable odds. Paul himself is fully convinced of this, and he's willing to continue to suffer for the sake of those who've been chosen by God for salvation. We talked about this a couple of Sundays ago, about the fact that God has chosen from the foundation of the world those that will be saved. And that's not a disincentive to evangelism. God has also ordained the means by which those people come to faith, and that's through our witness. But Paul is willing to suffer on their behalf, so that they can come to know the salvation which is in Christ and the glory that goes with that, a glory that far surpasses any difficulties that we experience in this life because of our profession of Christ. Paul knew that God was going to use him, even through his imprisonment, to bring others to a knowledge of Christ. And that knowledge gave him endurance in the midst of his sufferings. He says something very similar to this in his letter to the Colossians. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What in the world? Is he talking about something that's lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, he's not saying that what Christ suffered and endured at the cross was insufficient to make atonement. There's no question about that. He's saying that since Christ himself is no longer present on the earth, and Paul is and we are, we suffer on behalf of Christ. We suffer that others might see Christ in us. I think one of the most powerful ways, particularly in countries that are so opposed to the gospel, that people come to faith in Christ is seeing the response of genuine believers as they face persecution. 
There are many stories of people coming to Christ through that. Just as Christ himself did, Paul suffers on behalf of others that they might know the truth. Finally, in verses 11 through 13, we see Paul's admonition to Timothy to remember the truth of the two ways. He starts off this paragraph with, it's a trustworthy statement, a faithful word. This is a phrase that occurs five different times in the pastoral epistles. Once here in 2 Timothy, three times in 1 Timothy, and once in Titus, but nowhere else in the New Testament. And Paul uses this phrase to state a truth that's very fundamental to the gospel, fundamental to the church, and something that the church would have been trained in. In fact, the way that these, these are actually four statements that make up this trustworthy saying, the way that they're structured is very likely that it was either part of a creed that was read in the early church or even part of a hymn. These four statements occur in two pairs. The we pronouns make it just as relevant for us today as it was in the day that it was written. And I want this really to be the application or part of the application that we take away from this passage because it's just as relevant for us now as it was when Paul wrote it to Timothy. All four of these statements are if-then statements. What I mean by that is the first part of the sentence states the condition and the last part states the result. The first two statements of these four are positive They serve as an encouragement to believers to endure in the midst of suffering, which is a major theme of this letter. And the last four, or I'm sorry, the last two are negative. They're really warnings, warnings of abandoning the faith, of walking away from Christ, particularly, again, as you face persecution. Let's look at these one at a time. And I want to tell you up front that there's a couple of these I think are difficult. They're difficult interpretive decisions not because they aren't clear as to what they say, but because there's two views for a couple of these, both of which are taught elsewhere in Scripture, and it's kind of hard to decide between the two views. The two views, you can make arguments for both of them. Uh, I kind of enjoyed wrestling with it this week, and I've landed at a certain place. I'm sure there, there may be some here that would disagree with some of the interpretations, but I wanted to share with you what I have and, uh, and try to make the case for it. The first statement is, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Now, this is one of the ones that's harder. Some commentators here would say that this is the death that all believers experience when they come to faith in Christ. It's the mystical union with Christ in his death that Paul talks about in Romans 6. And I think you can make a very strong case for that because of the language in Romans 6. Uh, Romans 6 verse 8 in particular It's very similar to what Paul says here in 2 Timothy 2. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. The thing that finally convinced me otherwise of this is just the context. The context of 2 Timothy in particular is very different from what Paul is talking about in Romans 6. As I said, the whole letter of 2 Timothy is an exhortation to endure in the midst of suffering. One of the commentators that I read this week put it this way. The theme of this epistle, that is 2 Timothy, can be summarized as enduring to the end. Enduring suffering is mentioned throughout the book. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 12. Chapter 2, verse 9 and 12. Chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. 
as Carson and Moo indicated, and he's, this guy's quoting now, D.A. Carson and Doug Moo, or two other commentators, Paul leaves Timothy no doubt that while our salvation is a free gift from God, it is also demanding. In living out its implications, the believer is going to run into difficulties and will find that the God who sent his son to die on the cross is always served at a cost, end quote. In other words, Paul was clear in this epistle that obtaining eternal life is through belief, is through faith. It's by grace through faith. Certainly we can't do anything to earn that. However, Paul's focus here in 2 Timothy is more on the outworking of that belief in enduring suffering for the sake of the gospel. And I think it's vital that we understand these verses in 11 through 13 in light of that, in light of the letter as a whole. I take verse 11 then as a promise to those who are called upon to endure the highest form of suffering, and that is martyrdom. It's physical death for the sake of profession of faith in Christ. The fact is that many have paid that price through church history. Many continue to pay it today. And what enables believers to do that? You think about that. That is an incredible commitment. But the reason that we can do that is because we know what is beyond death. Is We know that we are with Christ when we die. So those that would have died for him will also live with him. The second part of the faithful saying in verse 12a says, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. Now, not everyone certainly is called upon to die for the sake of Christ and the sake of the gospel. Everyone is called upon to endure, to continue in the faith. Here again, Paul's speaking of endurance with view towards a future reward. That's another recurring theme that we see in the New Testament particularly in the book of Hebrews. But I want to read just a couple of places that talk about that. The first one's in Galatians. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. Now that again is a promise. It doesn't mention the word endurance, but it's looking toward the final reward as a motivation for not growing weary, not giving up. Hebrews 10, verse 32 says, Remember the former days. And Hebrews is very, much, very similar to 2 Timothy in the sense that it's set in a context of believers being persecuted. He talks about that in chapter 10. Remember the former days when after being enlightened, that is, after coming to a knowledge of Christ, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners in the same way that Onesiphorus, for example, showed sympathy to Paul, and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And then, of course, the passage in Hebrews 12 that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What's the motivation for that? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, in the same way Christ did what the writer of Hebrews is admonishing us to do. He looked ahead to what was beyond the cross. The joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and it sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. The promised reward here for enduring is reigning with Christ. Now, I know there are people today that say, we're already reigning with Christ today. Well, I don't know how you say that unless you radically redefine what the word reign means. It means to rule as a king. Christians aren't doing that today. We're subject today to all kinds of persecutions and tribulations and governments even of nations that very much oppose Christianity. And we're not conquering the world with the gospel today. There is no sense in which Christians are reigning over the world today as we normally understand that term. But this is a future promise of reigning with Christ after he returns to rule over the whole earth from the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. Of course, the book of Revelation is full of those kinds of promises, which is fitting because that book is all about the return and reign of Christ. Revelation 3.21 says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. And as we've just seen, that throne is in Jerusalem. It's the Davidic throne. It's not where Christ is now. As I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That is where Christ is now. He's on the father's throne. He's at his right hand. He's not reigning from his throne today. That throne is on the earth. Revelation 5, 9, and 10 make that clear. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain, he's talking about Christ, obviously, and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign, future tense, upon the earth. Revelation chapter 20. I saw thrones and they sat upon them. That's us. That's the church saints that return with Christ. And judgment was given to them. That judgment really is another way of saying that they exercise authority. They exercise rule from those thrones. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. Those are not people that have been martyred during the age of the church. Those are people that are martyred during the tribulation period when the Antichrist is in power, and they refuse to accept his mark. They came to life, they're resurrected, and reign with Christ for a thousand years. So we see both groups there, both the tribulation saints and the church saints, reigning with Christ upon the earth during the millennial kingdom. There's no mention of it in Revelation 20, but we know from Daniel 12 that the Old Testament saints are raised after the tribulation period and also participate in that rule. And then finally, in the eternal state, <clears throat> the new heavens and the new earth, in Revelation chapter 22, it says this, There shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face. His name shall be on their foreheads, 
And there shall no longer be any night. There shall, no, shall not have the need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God shall illumine them. And they shall reign forever and ever. Sum up then, those who share in Christ's rejection in this present age are assured of sharing in his triumph when he comes to reign. That's the first two sayings, and those are both encouragements for believers to continue and to endure. The last two are warnings. The last part of verse 12 says, literally, if we deny, that one also will deny us. So you can see how denying is set against enduring. The warning is that if we deny Christ, give up, withdraw, and walk away, then he will deny us. He'll deny knowing us. He'll deny that we belong to him. Another way to translate this word is that he will disown us. Now, of course, the question comes to mind, what about Peter? Peter denied Christ, and certainly Christ will not deny him. That's absolutely true. Peter was repentant. Christ restored him. He went on, obviously, to faithfully serve Christ, even to the point of being crucified upside down because he thought he was unworthy to die in the same way that Jesus did. So there's no question that Peter endured to the end. And this warning is not against a temporary lapse like Peter's. All of us have been guilty of that at one time or another. This is a warning that's a settled, hardened position against Christ. It's a a position that doesn't repent. Now, Christ himself taught this same thing, and Matthew 10 records it for us. Christ says, Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. In both cases... There's an open confession, an open identifying, identification with Christ. Conversely, there's an open denial and a hardened and unmoving denial of Christ. Now, Paul also warns us that it is possible for a person to confess Christ with his mouth and deny him with his life. He talks about this in one of the other pastoral epistles in Titus chapter 1. And the context here is very similar in the sense of contrasting belief with unbelief. He says in Titus 1, verses 15 and 16, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. That's not the description of a genuine believer. That's the description of somebody who professes to know God and does not. Finally, in verse 13, Paul writes, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And this is another one that can be taken in at least one of two ways. Um, Apisteo is the Greek verb here. It has the idea of being unfaithful or unbelieving, depending on the context. It is in the present tense here. So I think, again, this is not uh, momentary times of unbelief and momentary times of unfaithfulness. It's an ongoing, present tense, unfaithfulness or unbelief. 
And what Paul is saying is that just as Christ is faithful to his promise to save those who trust in him, he's also faithful to his promise to condemn those who don't. Now, we have no less of a context than John 3.16 that affirms this. That's a verse that we all know that many unbelievers know. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And that very much exemplifies the, the fact that belief in Christ is what saves. But just two verses down in verse 18, it says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Christ's faithfulness is part of who he is. It's part of his holy character that requires that he punish sin. That's what Paul means when he says that he cannot deny himself. In fact, that statement, saying Christ cannot deny himself, is really the capstone, the conclusion of all four of these last statements. And it serves to amplify all of them. As the unchanging God whose very nature is truth, he cannot be false to his own nature. He will surely save those who put their trust in him and punish those who do not. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise you that you are faithful, faithful to your promises, faithful to your threats. You're a God of great long-suffering and mercy, a God who desires all men to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. And yet you're also a God who will punish those in everlasting judgment that fail to repent. We thank you that you're faithful when we're not, in our momentary times of unfaithfulness as believers, but we also recognize that you're faithful when men are faithless, when they are not obedient to you. We thank you for these exhortations in Second Timothy for us to endure. We recognize that we, we live in a place where it's not nearly as difficult as it is for many believers in other parts of the world. And yet we still have to endure ourselves and we're still in places of temptation to deny Christ. Lord, help us to remain strong in you. Help us and keep us mindful, just as Paul kept Timothy mindful of who Christ is, of what he's done, and of what he's going to do when he comes back. And Lord, I just pray that that would motivate us to stay faithful to you and to love you and to serve you with all of our hearts. Thank you for the time that we've had tonight, and just thank you for this letter that's an exhortation to us, as well as to Timothy, to remain faithful to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.